0: This is too much with your host Maya Evans discussing issues other radio shows are afraid to discuss. Listen back to any episode of this is too much by checking out our Kutztown University radio podcasts on Spotify and Apple podcasts. And now this is too much with Maya Evans.
1: Hey y'all you're listening to this is too much on Kutztown University radio. I'm your host Maya your friendly campus feminist club president. This is Too Much is a monthly show where we discuss an array of tough topic, topics sorry that are simply too much. Today, our main topic is going to be all about how laws and policies can impact vulnerable communities. So this is our grand finale here on This is Too Much. So this is going to be a big monster of an episode. So hang tight and try and stay with us. Um, but before we get into it, I wanted to take a second to introduce today's guest host, Dr. Labar.
0: Hi everybody, I am Dr. Heather Labar, I am one of the faculty members in the Department of Social Work here at Kutztown University. I teach several classes, um, an FYS course titled New Adulting, and I currently teach Social Work 100. I also serve as the Director for Field Education for our BSW and MSW students. And um, I'm also a
1: alum, so congratulations to all the graduating Golden Bears. Thank you. I know we all really appreciate that. Um, Thank you so much for being on my show today, Dr. Labar. If you ever have the chance to take a social work course or take one of Dr. Labar's first year seminar courses here at Kutztown University, um, I promise she's a delight, a wealth of knowledge, and (laughs) hopefully you can get a little taste of that um, today on our show. So, as usual, before we jump into our main topic, um, which, like I alluded to earlier, is kind of a big one, um, we're going to play our little game here on This Is Too Much um, called This Is Too Much. So how our game works is we're gonna pick from a small series of current events and then discuss them lightning round style for about 90 seconds each. If you listened to my last episode about expanding feminism to include male voices, I definitely talked for longer on each of those topics. So gonna try and keep it tight at 90 seconds today um, for a finale episode. But Dr. Labar, if you're able to put 90 seconds on the clock, we can get started. I am ready. All right, cool. So 90 seconds on the clock and our first topic is going to be the potential cancellation of student loan debt. Um, Okay, so (laughs) we can get started. So this is currently a topic that's being talked about a lot. Um, I know that we talked about it a lot, um, especially during the last presidential race and i feel like it kind of shows up every now and again but right now we're in the midst obviously of joe biden's pregnant pregnancy (laughs) presidency (laughs) and i know that it's um it's one thing that a lot of people are kind of calling for especially with the pandemic and um how that greatly impacted a lot of people's economic situations um so we know that that um, president biden has paused um student loan payments, of I think, four times um, during the pandemic. So um, a lot of people are trying to call for the cancellation of this debt. So I don't know if you have anything to add, Dr. Labar. So I think what's interesting is that, you know, we've gone through all this time
0: where student loans have been postponed and put into deferment um, secondary to the pandemic. So what would be really interesting is looking at the impact of that you know, so what has this deferment done? And what's the purpose of, you know, that money coming in? And what are the responses, additional needs? um, And what's the benefit been for people that um, have their student loans deferred during this time?
1: Okay, so that's all the time I have. But I guess the last thing I just really quickly wanted to say about the student loan debt is like, would this be just kind of a one-time thing? Because I know a lot of us class of 2022 would surely like to see this come back if this is, um, you know, something that's being talked about. But, um, yeah, so we're going to move on to our second topic, which is going to be the United States teacher shortage. Ready? hmm Okay. So this is a very interesting thing. We kind of just talked about the pandemic, um, as we're always talking about the pandemic. But um, this is another one of those areas that we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of things change as a result of the pandemic. So I know that once COVID-19 was really coming to our country, a lot of teachers were taking that opportunity to either retire or take a break from teaching or just get out of the field in general because it was one of those very frontline kind of um, positions and also teachers had a lot of expectations to be able to transition to virtual learning um, without maybe the warning obviously because all of us were kind of like oh my gosh COVID but also without a lot of training and kind of experience doing that so um I know in teaching it's kind of joked about I saw something online the other day that was like if you have a appreciation week for your position then you probably don't get paid enough and you're also probably in a female dominated field (laughs) which I was like hmm definitely can be applied to teaching interesting yeah I don't know if you want to say anything else.
0: So, I mean, we understand the value of good teachers, right? right? We understand the value of education. And I think that this has been, you know, an ongoing and progressive issue, particularly in those areas that we know financially don't have the resources to pay really good teachers to help educate the community um, and these very um, young students. So, oh, our time is up, but I do think... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Time goes fast, right? I do think um, you know we need to evaluate and assess I, you know, I think that's very interesting that you say if there's an appreciation week,' you're, it's probably female dominated and you're not paid enough <laughs> like you're you're right as if a as if a week somehow absolves us right. <laughs> of the fact that you know people are financially struggling and doing you know good work for um, the pay that they are earning when there could always be more. I mean, we know that there are funds out there.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, last thing, last thing I'm going to say about this is I just wanted to add that I know a lot of the conversation is around the fact that aspiring teachers, future teachers um, are nervous about not being able to teach what they want to Mm. teach in classrooms Mm -hmm. um, for reasons that I believe we're going to get into a little bit later on our show here today. Um, But I just I. I don't know I think it's it's very unfortunate and it's an area that needs to be looked at again so yes I took more than 90 seconds but I'm probably not going to talk as long about this next one um (laughs) so if we could put 90 seconds on the clock for our last current event topic um the last one is Elon Musk buying Twitter so Elon Musk is the world's richest person and I looked it up he has a net worth of 273 billion dollars um so you know he (laughs) he has like tesla he's you know fronting this whole space vacation exploration kind of market he's doing all this stuff and his recent acquisition was buying the social media platform of twitter Mm -hmm. and he talked a little bit about that he doesn't like the censorship that is currently um coming about on twitter and he wants to Focus on maintaining Twitter as a venue for free speech. So, do with that what you will. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you have anything else for that. Uh, well, I, I think. I
0: mean, I'm always of the mindset that when you have that much of a bankroll, could you could you work to better society in in right. some way? You know, um, and and I understand, and I'm I'm pleased. You know, don't don't misunderstand. I I'm very much an advocate for free speech, but. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in this era now where we are, you know, have this uh, shift between what is free speech and what is misinformation. Right. And what does misinformation do to our society as a whole? And, you know, we need to be very, very careful about what we're reading, how we're reading it, and, you know, how we're absorbing that information. So um, I will be very interested to see. Where this goes, um, because, absolutely. Because Twitter is such a fast platform, um, it is so quick, and um, you know the the internet is forever. So right. that's you know, we just need to be like eyes up on the tweets and see what's right. happening.
1: Watch a social worker get their hands on two hundred seventy three billion dollars. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just to, I mean, <laughs> you talk about the student loan debt crisis and then, right. you know, it's just it, it's, um, you know, it's and teachers not being paid. Like, right. You know, think about you think about just even a quarter of that wealth and, you know, that being, um, you know, shared or um, focused somewhere.
1: Oh, I know that's so like that's a whole nother a whole nother thing for a whole nother day. That's a whole nother radio show. Absolutely. <laughs> OK, so. um as per usual here on This Is Too Much, I'm going to give you guys just a couple statistics definitions to introduce us to um, today's main topic, which is going to be how laws and policies can impact vulnerable communities. So, um, before we get started, I just wanted to say this episode might seem a little bit all over the place, but mostly it comes out of um, it comes out of me wanting to just. One last chance, big finale episode. I'm graduating um, on Saturday, which will be the day after you guys hear this radio show. And I just real quick want to get out every last thing I possibly can. So, um just that being said i wanted to give listeners a little bit of a trigger warning um for our episode we're gonna talk about a lot of heavy things today um like abortion access to abortion police brutality poor treatment of the lgbtq plus community and um and more things that might come about from our conversation so um just be warned um thank you so much for listening but um here we go so here are a couple statistics and definitions to get us into the topic so according to the center for disease control and prevention in 2019 women in their 20s accounted for the majority of abortions being 56.9 percent the majority in 2019 took place early in gestation 92.7 percent of abortions were performed at or before 13 weeks gestation a smaller number of abortions, 6.2%, were performed at 14 to 20 weeks gestation, and even small, fewer and smaller than 1% of abortions were po- performed at or after 21 weeks gestation. According to AmericanPregnancy.org, most women became aware of their pregnancies between 4 and 7 weeks gestation. According to Mapping Police Violence, Black Americans are 2.9 times as likely to be murdered by police than white Americans. According to PEN America, a nonprofit that advocates for freedom of expression, found that there have been 1,586 book bans in schools over the past nine months. The bans targeted 1,145 unique books by more than 800 authors and a pl- plurality of the books 41 percent featured prominent characters who are people of color 33 percent of the banned books meanwhile included lgbtq themes protagonists or strong secondary characters and 22 percent directly address issues of race and racism Okay, so we're going to get started here on our first topic um, of the day, which is our first vul- vulnerable community, um, which we decided upon the female-identified community. So the main thing we're going to talk about um, in this segment is going to be access to abortion. So um, if you've been paying attention to the news, this is a major thing that people are always talking about. I feel like this is always one of the most heavily debated things in um in politics but it's kind of taken a turn for in my personal Maya opinion the worse. but um, we'll get into that so I learned about this topic um, I've kind of been very interested in it for a while now but um, just to brush up on the specifics I watched a video on YouTube called Roe v Wade a legal decision and that was by the Federalist Society um, over on YouTube but um, what we're going to talk about is Roe v. Wade. So Roe v. Wade um, was a Supreme Court decision that I believe was decided upon um, in the 70s, 1973, 1973. I was going to say 1975, but Dr. LaBar signaled me 73. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But this decision um, that the Supreme Court did um, basically showed that abortion is a private matter and is on par with other basic human rights. Um, But I just wanted to say that the decision of Roe v. Wade basically um, set a precedent that abortion needed to be available in all 50 states. It didn't really say how readily available it needed to be or um, how easily accessed it needed to be. And so a lot of states um, took it upon themselves um, to make it as inaccessible as possible without completely taking abortion away in their states, which to me signals that Roe v. Wade was kind of like Um, I want to say the basement floor of abortion access in the United States. And um, right now, unfortunately, we're kind of seeing we're seeing an attack on it. Really, we're seeing the Supreme Court um, potentially overturning Roe v. Wade, which is something that um, a lot of people who support access to abortion have been, um, you know, fighting against and, and really dreading seeing for a while. But um, this decision, we recently, I don't know if if you're up to date with current events, but recently we saw a leaked Supreme Court um, ruling that would overturn Roe v. Wade, which hasn't been made official. So really everything is just um, speculation. It's talking about what we think might happen based on what we've seen, but really nothing was officially decided on. So right now, as as you're listening to this episode i'm assuming because we're listening a couple days before um we're recording sorry a couple days before you guys are listening to this but i'm assuming right now roe v wade is still the law of the land here in the united states um but yeah we're just going to talk a little bit about that today so i don't know if you have any opinions on what i just rattled off dr labar but yeah i mean i think that
0: you know healthcare for all um Healthcare access for all is, you know, a human right, and I do understand the arguments and the the implications for people who um, take a, a pro-life stance. This is your this is your belief. This is what you um, this is what you feel is best and right. Um, however, people have. The right to make a decision about their own bodies, in their own space and mm-hmm. time and place, and Roe v. Wade really protected women across the board. I'm not sure if anybody's had the opportunity to look at some of the imaging and some of the statistics. For a few, um, there's maps out there. I know that the New York Times and I and I believe that NPR has. Uh, graphic images of what states would be most impacted by um, Roe v Wade being overturned and if you look it is very much the, the center of the nation um, it is that mm-hmm. you know that w- what you know is referred to as the Bible belt um, where these services would be you know uh, you know not available for right. women um, and we need to think about why women are accessing, this medical service, right. um,
1: and what are the consequences of not being able to do that? Um, I was able to find on Biomed Central um, a couple of reasons why a lot of people um, opt for abortion, mm-hmm. and so um, some of these reasons are financial, um, financial-related timing, um, partner-related reasons, the need to focus on other children, and um, and so those are just some of the things that um, might lead people to opt for the abortion option. But I just think it's very interesting, no matter what you believe, because um, really, we're, we're not even I'm, I'm disclosing my own personal opinion here. But um, one one thing I just think that's really important, no matter what you believe, is that. We will never get rid of abortions in the United States. We can only outlaw safe ones. And um, I'm sure you can all think of the implications of that. Um, I think that this topic is very pointed towards low income people seeking abortion, because in reality, if you're a um, if you're a high income person that has the ability to be able to travel, to be able to um you know, seek out your health care elsewhere, this isn't going to affect you in the same way that a low income individual will be affected. So to me, when I see this, I'm looking at a quality issue really more than anything. I I agree. And I actually,
0: I had this conversation um, in preparing for this, for our our show today, I was discussing this topic with my husband and, you Mm -hmm. know, we've had this ongoing conversation, um, you know, and, and we talked about this you know, sense that if if you're living in a state where this is no longer an, an, a medical procedure that is available to you, do you have the funds and resources to go to a state where there is? And then, what kind of you know hoops do you need to jump through for that? I mean, we can all think about the impact that just gas prices have had for us. Right. Um, you know, and you know now think about traveling across state lines when your financial equity is just not there. <laughs> you know, you don't have those resources. Um, one of the things, um, Maya, I have the benefit of looking at um, some of the research that you compiled for this uh, talk today. I just want to indicate your last um, your last piece here. Most women mm-hmm. reported multiple reasons for seeking an abortion crossed over several themes. So those themes of financial reasons, timing, um, issues with partners, and maybe, you know having other children. So you know we really need to understand or, or you know wrap our brains around the idea that this isn't just one aspect. This isn't just one thing or reason. It could be multiple. Right. And, um, you know, there, there just might not be, while it might not be the, the choice that somebody wants to make, it might be that the necessary
1: choice in that moment. So I just wanted to Quick, end this and this um, segment of our show, and I really am glad that we got to, you know, briefly discuss this today because to me this is one of the major topics that a lot of people are talking about. Um, but I guess I just wanted to end it by ac- asking Doctor Labar. Um, I kind of touched on it before, but do you believe that there is no such thing as eliminating abortion, um, but only eliminating safe abortion? Oh, absolutely. When people need a resource they
0: will find it. Right. And, you know, it, it's so interesting that, um, people, you know, refer to history and, and look at history and you think about, um, or you hear the stories about, you know, um, unsafe abortions at back alley abortions, and you see the imaging of coat hangers for a reason. Right. Um, so, and while that is, while that is graphic and while that is disturbing, it's there because it happened. So, are we going to put women, our sisters, our friends, our cousins, our nieces, in these positions um, to have to make that choice? Um, and if there is a need,
1: there will be a way. Right. Yeah. And to me, that's that's really where this conversation lies. Um, no matter no matter where you believe personally or politically, to me, that's where the conversation lies. Mm-hmm. But um, Here on This Is Too Much, we're going to continue on to discussing our second community of the day, um, which is the um, black community. So the main point that I wanted to talk about um, is the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, um, which is not a law that that was not um, continued and passed yet. Through our American governmental system, but I read a lot on this um, on this act through the actual the Congress congress.gov website and if you're not looking at congress.gov um you should be because it's very easy to look up different acts look at um if they've been passed through the house if they've been passed through the senate um where they are how many times they've been brought to the floor um to me it was it was a really great resource um but i also watched a youtube video um, to learn about it which was entitled what is the george floyd justice and policing act Breaking down the bill and opposition, and that was from PBS NewsHour. So we love we we love PBS. So <laughs> indeed, <laughs> <It> was, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to me, I just wanted I wanted to start this off by just opening our conversation on police brutality. So police brutality um, is a terrible terrible reality that impacts Black Americans generation after generation um, in in Black households police brutality is a coming-of-age conversation. It's not taken lightly, and it's at the back and front of all Black American minds, in my experience. And so um, this George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was introduced into the conversation um, in the summer of 2020, which is, we're coming up on two years of that, which doesn't feel real, Um, but... George Floyd was killed unjustly with excessive force um, by police Derek Chauvin, and I know um, Dr. Labar definitely wanted to bring up on this talk today that it wasn't just um, it wasn't just Derek Chauvin, the policeman, um, using that excessive force, but there were three officers as bystanders standing there and allowing it to happen. So there was it was really four against one in this situation and unfortunately this situation was not unique and i know i've talked about these situations on my show before but it's like you could there's a laundry list of just unjust police killings, specifically on black americans Mm -hmm. and so really on at the summer of 2020 um though the black community has been fighting and fighting and um discussing this for generations on generations it kind of bubbled up in the summer of 2020 and was brought to the attention the wider attention of all Americans in my opinion Um, and I just wanted to ask Dr. Labar how do you feel about the increase in activism for um, the topic of police brutality in the summer of 2020? I mean it was uh, it was
0: first of all um, to See the um, the murder of George Floyd so um, so so clearly. Um, It was just horrific. You know, it was it was a uh, it was. I I don't have any other words for it than that. It was just it was horrific. To see the response from the community, communities like not just one communities, um, people coming together, rising up. It really showed me that there was a. Uh, a, a, an awareness that had finally, we had pushed through. And, and I remember talking about the protests and what was going on um, in, a, in a faculty setting and having um, professors, fellow professors who had been um, present and engaged during the civil rights movement. And, and the, the language around talking about the summer of 2020 was very much that this was similar, but it was different. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was a different level of awareness and understanding, and a different level of expectation for what was wanted from um, this outcry of, um, you know, needing to reevaluate and reassess uh,
1: police intervention. Right. And to me, uh, one major difference that we were able to see in the summer of 2020 and beyond compared to some of those earlier m- movements that um, Dr. Labar just brought up was the use of social media mm-hmm. and things like Twitter. We talked about Twitter earlier. Um, I know for me that summer, Twitter was a really big tool in just kind of connecting and understanding what was going on across our country. So um, hashtag Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement did not start in the summer of 2020. It was founded in 2013 um, by three female Black activists, Um, and from there, I feel like it caught a lot of traction in the summer of 2020, but I just think it's, for me, the main takeaway that I get from this whole conversation, and I know I'd, I'd said it before, but Black Americans have been thinking about this and fighting about this all along, really, and it's now that we're getting more allyship from other communities. So I just really wanted to highlight that point. Um, But one thing that came out of this um, huge summer of protest and um, speaking out on these issues is the introduction of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021. So um, this was introduced to address some of the identified issues in policing. So... It was passed in the House, but it still needs to go through the Senate and then the president to become a law. Um, And I'm just going to read off directly, but um, this bill, it would lower the criminal intent standard from willing to know willing to knowing or reckless to convict a law enforcement officer for misconduct in a federal prosecution limits qualified immunity as a defense to liability in a private civil action against a law enforcement officer and grants administrative subpoena power to the Department of Justice in pattern or practice investigations. Um, So this would give families the ability to sue and allow for more accountability from police officers, um, which would hopefully work to minimize and hopefully eventually end this this horrific pattern of police brutality. Um, So lastly, um, I just wanted to ask, How do you think if this bill were to move through and become a law, um, Dr. Labar, do you think this would eventually instigate substantial change? I do.
0: And um, I I think what's very interesting is that, you know, one of the things that we talk about in social work, particularly in relationship to policy work, is we talk about incremental change. And um, I have the George Floyd um, Justice in Policing Act fact sheet. And I believe I got this from um, that um, Mm Congress.gov that you, unless, was this, okay, yeah, so um, what's great is that this provides bullet points for, you know, the the important pieces of this legislation. One of the things that I thought was extremely interesting is that um, one of the pieces of this legislation is that it, it improves the use of pattern and practice investigations at the federal level Um, and that there's a nationwide police misconduct registry. And I think that was one of the most important things that came out of the investigation in relationship to George Floyd was that these officers had a history and a pattern. And um, if we think about the role and function of what an officer is trained to do in a community and within a community, um, if that falls in conflict with the actual behavior in Um, in their role um, that needs to be monitored and it needs to be responded to. Do I think that there will need to be time to reassess and um, enculturate people into this new way of thinking and responding? Yes, absolutely. I do. Um, Will people violate this policing act? You know, hopefully when it is passed, I'm sure they will because sometimes patterned behavior and behaviors and expectations that are ingrained are very, very difficult to undermine. But having this as a, as a policy to hold people accountable is what is needed.
1: Right. Um, I totally agree with that. And I just wanted to end this segment by saying the absolute nationwide support and push that this topic got in the summer of 2020 should not die down Mm -hmm. Um, we need the black community needs continued allyship and this conversation um, I hope that you all um, take this segment of the radio show and continue this conversation with the people in your lives and um, I'm going to talk about this at the end of our show but the biggest thing you can do um, is, is vote. I, I really hope that you guys make it out to vote and you know, continue to be political um, active members of your community because that's how we make change. That's, um, that's our, civil, our civil duty <laughs> to mm-hmm. vote. So I really hope that um, everybody goes out to do this and keeps this conversation going. Um, active allyship. We talked a little bit about that on our last radio show um, but continue to, to support really. Um, But I believe that's a good time for us to go ahead to commercial break. Um, So we're going to take a quick break and we'll see you guys um, right back here um, for the second half of This Is Too Much. hey y'all welcome back from the commercial break um you're listening to this is too much on kutztown university radio um a show where we talk about tough topics that are simply too much so today um, i'm joined by um, dr labar from the social work department here at Town university and we are talking at lightning speed about lots of um laws and policies um and Supreme Court ruling in the first section that impact vulnerable communities. So we're gonna move on to our third community here today, um, which is the LGBTQ community. And so the main thing that I wanted to talk about in this segment is the Equality Act. So I learned about this um, bill again, just like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that I talked about before the break. It is not a law. it is um, a bill that is moving through um moving through our government so i learned about this in um an article called what you need to know about the equality act and that was from americanprogress.org so um to me it is plain to see i've been doing my internship here i'm a senior i'm graduating um, like I think I already said, I'm graduating the day after you guys hear this radio show, but um, I did my internship here on campus um, at KU and I worked with the LGBTQ plus resource center and I also worked with the women's center as well. Um, but through my work, really, I feel like um, as an ally to the LGBTQ plus community, I was able to see and learn a lot more about how the LGBTQ plus community really is uh, unfair target of so much hate and discrimination in the United States. Um, There's a lot of injustice that is going on every single day. And it really, it's another community that needs our support and needs our allyship um, as they move through, as they move through um, gaining support and gaining rights and um, things. So um, this Equality Act, I believe would, play a big part in kind of dissolving some of the discrimination and um, hold hateful people accountable just like the george floyd justice and policing act um, so the equality act um, is a landmark piece of legislation that would expand federal civil rights laws to protect the lgbtq community from discrimination in areas of employment housing credit jury service and federally funded programs such as those for health and education as well in public places and spaces so um, this act would serve as an amendment to the civil rights act of 1964 Um, and it has passed through the house um, but it requires movement through the senate and um, the president's desk to become a law so um, I just wanted to ask Dr. Labar: In what ways do you think this act would benefit people in the LGBTQ plus community?
0: Well, I think it would really
1: provide
0: legislative support for um, and against discriminatory practices. You know, people. I mean, there's. <laughs> I, I'm. I was reading through this legislation, and I was. I was thinking to myself, like, do Do we really need legislation? for people to be able to live their lives, regardless of of who they are. Like, it it baffles me that a a piece of legislation like this even needs to exist, but but clearly it does because people have um, these preconceived ideas and um, uh, notions about people um, and the lives that they lead. Um, You know, I really think that... um, this would serve to support and really um, positively diversify our community in a very open way. I mean we know the history of the LGBTq plus community and um, the, the hidden nature of you know what the community has had to go through um, and um, sort of being um, pushed aside or moving in silence you know in um, in our in our society and This would really, in my opinion, remove those barriers and just say, um, you know, we do not, you are not able to discriminate on these levels. This is not acceptable. This is not what we want as a society. One other thing I'd like to add in relationship to um, the Equality Act that I read under federally funded programs, the Equality Act would also protect transgender and non-binary students from the pervasive misgendering and harassment That many face a life saving step. And, you know, I think that that's really, that was so poignant because this is truly what it is recognizing people for who they are and honoring who they are as individuals. I mean, again, we shouldn't have to have legislation for people to recognize that people are people and humans and, you know, deserve equity in life. But creating this legislation makes it very, very clear that this is something these are protections these are rights that everyone has
1: right yes and to me like that's a very interesting piece because i feel like that's one of those things um i've been thinking about the treatment of the lgbtq plus community in educational settings um Mm -hmm. last month was the um, national day of silence which is meant to honor those inequalities um for the community and educational settings and so I was thinking a lot about that and that is like a that's a very interesting piece I feel like in school settings there's a lot of misgendering and a lot of dead naming and stuff like that that really can impact how equal an LGBTQ plus students legislation is because how are you going to learn and thrive and feel comfortable when the people that are supposed to be helping you and are learning right beside you are being hateful and, you know, using microaggressions against you as well. And I think that that's, that's something that maybe I I don't think about. I don't think about a lot. So I think
0: what's interesting too is, and I, I learned, um, from, um, Christine Price, who is the director of the the women's center and the LGBTQ plus resource center was that like our, so the, the, um, the internal administrative systems that um, faculty members use um, are are now being transitioned into, you know, identifying, um, you know, people's uh, preferred names, preferred pronouns, you know, mm-hmm. those sorts. Of, so, before you know, faculty members even meet a student, we have the opportunity to, you know, be aware of that information and um, you know really be supportive of the students that come into our classes and that we interact with and you know that's what I mean that's the goal to create that safe environment because you're here for a reason to get your education and um, I know as a faculty member that's my job you know my job (laughs) is to help you get there and you know however um, you know you feel most comfortable doing that is, is the best path
1: absolutely mm-hmm. and and that educational piece that's just one sector um right that's just one sector of of this larger issue um, of the mistreatment of the lgbtq plus community in different um, venues but i guess i just wanted to end this section a little bit by talking about a project that i have never gotten to the opportunity to talk about here on my radio show um, but i thought it would be really fitting to kind of bring it up um at this time. So, um, one thing that I've been working, working for and working through during my internship has been, um, a project here in Kutztown, um, called the Kutztown All-Inclusive Establishment Project. Um, and if you didn't know, that's where we're recording from. I guess you guys all would know, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, this project is, um, a campaign that I decided to, um, found where I would, recognize visible acceptance of diversity throughout the town of Kutztown by communicating to business owners or managers about, um, if their business was truly a safe space and accepting space for all types of people, um, with a focus on the LGBTQ plus community and areas like gender identity and sexual orientation, which are unfortunately so often discriminated against. So, um, throughout the semester I was communicating and last semester I was communicating with um, these different businesses and confirming that they're accepting of all types of people all types of um, guests and patrons and um employees at their establishments and when they agreed to sign on to the campaign i would give them a little window sticker um, that they could display at their business and so um, to me that signifies um, maybe as a new community member walking down the street that um, there's a place for the lgbtq plus community um, here in kutztown so i just thought that that's one thing that honestly i wish i didn't have to do the project i wish that that would just be kind of a (laughs) given Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, with things like this Potential Equality Act, hopefully we would have less of a need for that kind of thing and it would just be literally the law, but right now it, it just isn't, so...
0: Maya, can you let um, our listeners know where they can
1: find more about the all-inclusive establishment? Because there's a there's a web page, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if anybody's interested in learning more or seeing the full list of businesses that are participating here in Kutztown, you can just um, Google up Kutztown University um, LGBTQ Resource Center or Women's Center. And once you get to the homepage of that, um, there is a tab on... Um, The left side that you can click, it says Kudstown All-Inclusive Establishments. You can click on that and you can read more about the campaign and you can also see the participating businesses. So um, I believe that that nicely wraps up um, this section of our radio show and we are going to move into the final segment of This Is Too Much here today, um, which is gonna be all about book banning, which is a really interesting topic. Um, So I learned about book banning um, through this article called The Most Banned and Challenged Books from 2013 to 2020 from Playground Equipment. Which I when I was reading through this, it was super interesting. So if anybody takes a special interest in this, um, totally go and search that up because it was really cool. Um, But I guess I just want to ask Dr. Labar, what is
0: a band book? So um, a band or a challenged book is a is a book that is um, identified as having some um, theme or reason as to why it should not be. Uh, publicly available in certain um, either libraries or um, community areas, schools, um, that individuals within a given community identify that this is a a problematic piece of literature.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that one thing that is to be noted is that these banned or challenged books, they oppress the messages and stories of a lot of the vulnerable communities that we were able to talk about um, on This Is Too Much today. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to read off a couple of examples of banned books um, or challenge books. And um, hopefully you guys can recognize some of these and and think like, hmm, maybe those stories shouldn't shouldn't be banned um, in our school systems. But... um, There is To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, I Am Jazz by Jessica Herthel and Jazz Jennings, and Tango Makes Three by Peter Parnell and Justin Richardson, The Kite Runner by Khalid Hosseini, The Color Purple by Alice Walker, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, and The Hate You Give by Angie Thompson, and so, so, so many more. So um, I guess I just wanted to say, to ask, why are books banned? So I think it's that um,
0: just just as you stated that you know there is a, a theme or a message or a um, a value that um, is in opposition to what the reader feels is best and um, most appropriate given the readership. Um, my in in reading and, and researching this topic. My sense very much is that there are, um, you know, ideas that adults don't necessarily want children exposed to, or, um, you know, the, the reader has a, a conceived notion about what the content is actually trying to convey or do or instill in the reader. Um, and that is, um, that, that can be construed as, as problematic for, you know, the, the person that wants to ban or challenge these titles.
1: So who bans books then?
0: There is a, a community outpouring in, in some way, or there is, a, there is an identification of a text or a book that is um, challenging to uh, you know, a group, a community. So we'll use To Kill a Mockingbird as an example. So a, a community can come together and say, we don't want To Kill a Mockingbird in our middle school library or our high school library. And then collectively, there's the decision that is made to remove this title. Um, What these resources, um, like uh, the playground equipment article you pulled and the ALA, um, what they will do is then um, keep track or keep record of or, you know, create this library of books that has been or have been banned and challenged, um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and if you look at the history of some of these texts, these books, you will see that they are consistent throughout years after years after years.
1: So, um, to me, when you were saying about, um, individuals or, um, people in communities or even local governments at some point, um, being responsible for, um, indicating that books should be banned or challenged. Mm -hmm. To me, that kind of brought up thoughts about school boards and Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. how important it is to make sure that um, school board members are representative of the types of people that you want being loud voices for these types of things. 100%. I mean, you know, when we
0: think about information, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that's what that's what these books are. They're information. Um, And, you know, how are we restricting or not restricting information for children who are learning or for adults who are
1: learning? So I just wanted to bring up that there is a couple like key reasons why a lot of books are banned and challenged Mm -hmm. in the United States. And um, so some of these reasons might be because they deal with gender identity, um, they have a political viewpoint, they deal with um, drug use, author misconduct, um, they're anti-police, they have religious viewpoints, they have LGBTQIA plus content, um, and really the list goes on and on um, for reasons why books might be banned or challenged. So I I think one of the very
0: interesting things that... um, you know, when you go through this list of the reasons why um, these books are banned, so um, you know we had our we had our talk about um, you know the the overturning of Ro- Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. um, and um, what that you know could mean. For our society, but The Handmaid's Tale uh, by Margaret Atwood is on this list. Um, and the reasons, now The Handmaid's Tale was originally written in uh, 1985. So just think about where you were in 1985. And um, if you've watched The Handmaid's Tale, I know they've adapted it on Hulu, um, or whatever cool streaming site that is. Um, you know, the, the reason that it's banned is for profanity and sexual content. So, you know, when you hear terms like, um, you know, uh, anti-police or, um, you know, LGBTQ plus, you know, content, you should really think about what that means. Right. Um, you know, and is it necessarily anti-police or is it sexual content and in, in what, in what way, in what vein, um, or is that
1: coded for something different
0: Exactly. You know, what is what is the reason that that's what they're, you know, identifying this as. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, just be very careful. Absolutely. <laughs> when you're looking at this list.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's it's really interesting too because I know towards the beginning of the show, um, when we were talking about the United States teacher shortage, um, we were talking about how some teachers are choosing not to teach anymore because they can't bring the lessons to their classrooms that they would want to bring. And I think this is one of those things that keeps them from doing so. Um, so I guess I just wanted to ask Dr. Labar, Dr. Labar actually incorporates some banned books, um, into her first year seminar classes, mm-hmm. so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Absolutely, I would. I would be thrilled to. So I have the benefit of my um, FYS class um, running in the fall, and um, so banned books week uh, occurs in September. So there's usually a, a pointed lecture on this very topic: why why books are banned, and you know, with the very um, clear stance that the text that we use for FYS, um, for new adulting is the hate you give by Angie Thomas. Um, I read the hate you give, um, one summer and, um, I read it every year, um, as I go through, um, this, this book or as I go through this class. And, um, you know, for me, the whole reason I chose the hate you give was because it, for me, it it beautifully aligned with, um, social work intervention and Mm -hmm. an understanding of, um, Person and environment, family and environment, community, and how laws and policies impact um, communities. And there's also um, a really beautiful um, evolution of self, you know, in in this in this story. But it's also a very pointed um, conversation around um, the, the murder of a of a young, of an unarmed black man, um, and the the main character in the story, Star, um, witnessing that murder, and you know how she moves through, um, accepting and um, standing up and having her voice be heard. So it's it's a very powerful novel. It's it's a YA novel, mm-hmm. um, so it's an it's an easy read, but the depth of it is is so significant. And the reason I use it is because um, it is again so clearly aligned with social work, but it also really provides. Um, students that maybe have not really had an awareness or understanding of what um, the communities in this book represent. Um, You know, sometimes we have students that come in um, that really have not had a whole lot of experience with diversity. um, Right. To be very aware of, you know, what are the barriers, what's happening in these communities, what is going on. And, um, It's really, for me, very important to have the conversation about, um, you know, how do we see what goes on in this fictionalized text occur in our in our actual real life communities, what what goes on. Um, So, you know, the reasons that um, the hate you give is on the banned list or challenge list is um, for profanity and um, that it is anti-police. And you know, what's very interesting um, is that, okay, there, there is the F word. Okay, fine. Um, we, you can hear that everywhere. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the whole notion that this is anti-police, um, you know, it's, I, I can see how people would, would view it that way. Um, if you don't understand what the issue is. Absolutely. And, and what you, if you don't understand what's actually going on or take a moment to recognize what i mean stars fictional family goes through this horrific event it impacts their community it impacts her school it impacts her relationships it impacts everything and the narrative is so close to what people live i mean the narrative is what people live Absolutely. every day and i'm getting chills thinking about it but it is it is powerful and you know again when i said we need to be very aware of what the language is that people are using to describe a certain text um that's it you know is it is it anti-police or is it pro-community right (laughs) is it pro um you know people existing is it you know um what um what's actually going on um so i have had the benefit of the students that i read the book with enjoying the text um There is a book, there is a movie out there, and Mm -hmm. please always read the book first. Yeah. (laughs) Please read the book first, um, because it's completely different. um, And, um, I mean, it's good, don't get me wrong, but I prefer the book. So, you know, just... I have not had a student, maybe they just haven't told me <laughs> that they <laughs> they can't stand this book. You know, I've never had somebody say, like, this is the worst text you've ever, <laughs> you know, could ever come up with. Um, but there's, there's a recognition and, a, and an awareness of um, something beyond their individual experience as a student. And that's not only the benefit of reading, but the benefit of going to college. You know, right. exposing yourself to ideas and people and situations and circumstances different from what you've grown up in. So, you know, that's that's the good work you do while you're here. And, you know, taking a moment to really think about what's going on in these works.
1: And to me, that's really not only not only one of the key points in reading band or challenged books, but it's also been one of my main motivations for, um, for this show, for this is too much. Mm-hmm. And just, um, making myself and, and making hopefully all of you guys aware of maybe some things that you previously weren't exposed to and starting conversations that, um, that might be difficult or uncomfortable or, um, different from yourself. So, um, to me really that that summed it up really really well and that summed up what I wanted to discuss here on the show today and discuss in all my shows because this is the finale episode um but we are unfortunately coming to the end of our time here on this is too much but um before I close out I just wanted to ask Dr. Labar if you had any any finishing thoughts on final thoughts on um any of the things that we discussed here today I mean, I will agree
0: that we covered a lot of
1: topics, and oh, yeah.
0: you know, and I think that they're very, um, they're they're heavy topics. So, um, but they're good topics, and so I would just encourage everyone to continue being open to gathering information. There's there's good information out there, and um, and take your time when contemplating and reflecting on, you know, these topics and um, what your thoughts are about them. Um, because there's it's they're not necessarily simple or or easy. Um, They require time. So um, educate yourself, read, um, be gentle with yourself as you grapple with your own internal um, struggle with whatever these topics bring up for you and um, find places to have good open honest conversation
1: right right Mm -hmm. start conversations continue to be curious and vote absolutely vote
0: please vote
1: yes um so thank you so much to dr labar for being my guest host on this is too much today i hope that you had a a nice time flying through all these different um Huge topics today.
0: I did. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was fun.
1: (laughs) So to all of my listeners out there, um, please remember to be an active member of your campus community and also your wider community. This may be the end of This is Too Much, but I encourage you to continue initiating hard conversations and seeking out information on hidden topics. Congratulations to the graduating class of 2022. We are here. We did it. And we're the future. Non-graduating Kutztown University students, when you return to campus in the fall, please remember to stay connected to your Boxwood House, home of the KU Women's Center and LGBTQ Resource Center. The Boxwood House is a safe space for all students. Drop in, do your homework, chat with staff, and be yourself. The Boxwood House is located directly across from Old Main and can be spotted by its blue shutters and LGBTQ pride flags hung proudly in the window. In future semesters, do not forget to check out the Boxwood House's affiliated clubs, Allies, It's On Us, and my love, the Feminist Majority Leadership Alliance. Help us to improve the campus climate and engage in local activism. We need you. Please continue to stay tuned to Kutztown University Radio for all sorts of other awesome programming. Remember to stay involved, stay informed. I've been your host, Maya, and thank you for listening to This Is Too Much.